I'm not the only one who's interested in being a creative at the intersection of commerce. Whether you're a healthcare professional or a medical device leader, you're at the intersection. So meet my guest, Chris Doe. I, like many of you listening to me, began January 1 of 2020, before the pandemic hit, thinking, what does the future hold for me? In that process, I came across Chris Doe. You see, Chris is an Emmy award-winning agency owner, and he made a pivot. We're going to talk about this. This is so relevant to healthcare professionals and medical device leaders, certainly innovative medical distributorships, a pivot into problem solving and what's needed. Now, fast forward a couple of months later, and we enter into COVID-19. And people like Chris Doe, who pivoted to problem solving, made it easier to connect with their ideal clients, are having unbelievable success. And I wanted the opportunity for Chris to share that process with you. God is a designer. Explain that one to us, Chris. Oh, way to jump in there. <laughs> God is a designer is something that uh, a friend of mine, Angel Acevedo, who's a born-again Christian, and he's really into streetwear. And this is his invention and his idea. And he's had this thing for almost a decade now. But it's not really gone anywhere because like most traditional designers, he's really good at coming up with ideas that tap into what's going on, the psyche of people. But he's not so good at running a business. And he's got lots of ideas, but not enough focus and concentration. A couple of years ago, he reached out to me and said, hey, can I, can I just send you this hat? And of course, my first defensive response is to say, you could send me anything, but that doesn't guarantee I will do anything with it. As long as you're okay with that, then I'm okay. He sends me the hat and look at it. And it's like, okay, I was born, uh, I was raised Catholic. I'm no longer practicing, but I look at this thing. I'm like, this is really cool. It's mm-hmm. Helvetica. It's white on black. It has all the right vibes. And so, you know, I wear a lot of different hats. I wear hats from all different kinds of manufacturers. So one day I'm like, let me just swap this hat out. I'll wear this. And the response was incredible. This is a hat that you can't go by without having somebody interrupt you and ask you about it. Like, what does it mean? Uh, Is God a designer? Is there a God? And we get into like really interesting conversations. So I use it mostly to spark dialogue with people. Yeah, I love it. And you literally and figuratively wear a lot of hats in which we'll talk about that in just a moment. So I appreciate you answering that. I, uh, the hat has sparked conversation with me and our team and, and I really appreciate it for the reasons that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Explain your 1 billion mission in a way that makes it so that it's 1 billion and one more person added to this mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little while ago, we were trying to kind of figure out how to explain what the future is. And there's some very complicated marketing mumbo jumbo speak that we were using. And I was like, you know, guys, let's just make it really simple. I'm passionate about education. I want to help as many people as I can. 
just coming to America myself as a refugee from a communist country, um, I, I was just like, I was given this gift. I live in the best place in the entire world and I'm able to realize my dreams. But I see how so many other people, Americans and non-Americans, people from all over the world are still trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And I thought, okay, look, why don't we just make this the focus and let's put a number on it. We need to make this goal super tangible. And at first I thought, okay, let's try and teach a million people. And then with the way that the channel is growing, and I was thinking that's not a big enough goal. So the next logical number for me was a billion. A million to a billion. Okay, that's a really big goal. Maybe one that I won't be able to accomplish in this lifetime. But the goal is to teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. This is the really critical part. The alignment of who you are, what your passions and interests are with a way to make money around it. Because I think so many of us live this, excuse me, so many of us live this fractured life where we're one kind of person in one moment and a different kind of person when we need to make money. And if we can just meld those together to kind of bring those components together, I think everybody's going to be happier, healthier, and wealthier. Not necessarily always in terms of monetary, but they'll be wealthier in the way they live their lives richly. And when people ask you what you do, how do you respond to that question? I just tell people I'm a teacher. I happen to make videos on YouTube and I use social platforms to extend and scale that message across the, across the world. Yeah, I love the simple and frankly, it's you offer some clarity there. I love that. So when Chris Doe, mm-hmm. and I know that you're creative and you're a designer and you're a teacher, when you have to visit a doctor's office or a dentist's office, beyond you know, help in removing the pain that you're experiencing, what the heck is someone like you with your skill set thinking? Ooh, okay, this is a loaded question here. Well, I, I'm thinking lots of different things. Uh, the, probably the first thing I'm thinking is this is going to be an expensive visit especially here in America, why we pay for some of the highest costs in terms of healthcare and we get some of the worst service, that it's not always healthcare, it's profit care. But the other thing that I think about is it's very antiquated that everything about the whole process of getting an appointment, of calling in to make an appointment and then parking and then getting in there and waiting in the lobby, oftentimes like I'm I'm there on time, why can't this begin on time? So the way that mm-hmm. they're scheduled the way that you're shuttled from room to room and then meeting with a host of different people until finally your doctor comes in, checks on you for a few minutes, writes a prescription. And then here's here's the worst part. It's like, it's not a complete visit because then now I have to take that prescription and go get it filled. And so there's a lot of room for innovation, for streamlining the process, for transparency and information and using the web or the cloud to kind of bring all this information together. Yeah, I love that answer. And I would agree with you that you and I are focused on experience. And I know that the surgeons that are listening to us now or the dental professionals that are listening to us now, they're focused obviously on quality of care, but perhaps we're able to help them rethink the patient experience. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Talk about your agency. And then if you will, Unpack that for us about how you created the future as a school of tomorrow. Okay. So are you talking about when you say the agency blind as a service studio or just mostly just I the am. future? Okay. 
Yeah, so I graduated from Art Center in 1995, and I got into this burgeoning field called motion graphics, which allowed me to combine my love for typography, for animation, for video, and photography all together. And it was a wonderful thing that we were doing because there were a lot of opportunities. The money was good. The creative briefs that we got were incredible. And it was just a wonderful time. It was the wild, wild west for motion design. We worked on commercials and music videos, and we did this for 20 plus years. But in 2014, um, just coming out of a desire for a shift, because we saw that people weren't watching commercials. And when I say we saw, I mean, we saw it in ourselves using DVR to skip commercials, to have content pulled in versus pushed at us. So I was thinking, if I'm not watching as much TV and commercials specifically, and neither are my younger uh, employees, what's going to happen to this industry that we work in? And I could see the writing on the wall very clearly. So for a number of years, we were trying to figure out what else can we do when, not if, commercials were going away in the way that we knew how to do them. We tried to get into web design. First attempt failed miserably. And then we started to learn about brand strategy. And this is when I meet a friend of mine from school and we're talking about this. And I asked him really simply, am I doing something wrong? Like, why, why are these websites so difficult? And he says, Chris, and his name is Jose. Jose says to me, I'll show you. Bring me your next client. I'll show you how we do it. Now, Jose comes from the world of web design. And so he's bringing this wealth of knowledge and allowing me just to kind of ride shotgun and see this process. And in doing this together, I was like, wow, there's just a whole nother world out there that I need to learn more about. So we started to successfully migrate away from commercial work to brand strategy work and design. And that was really awesome. But something more wonderful had happened. We were starting to make video content together because both of us had this deep passion for teaching. I was doing it at school at Art Center and he was doing it online via YouTube. And our two worlds collided and we started this company called The School. Now, I'm a behind the camera kind of talent. So it was very uncomfortable for me to be in front of camera talking about the things that I knew for a lot of different reasons because I didn't want to risk alienating current and potential clients. That's the problem with being transparent and speaking openly and honestly is you're either going to make that commitment to say what you're thinking or you're not. So I'd have to be very careful to sometimes abstract the names and specifics of certain clients. Like they would know who they were, but the world would not so that I wouldn't get into some kind of defamation lawsuit. But we started talking about things and to my surprise and delight, slowly over time, an audience started to show up. Because prior to this, I always thought YouTube was a place where you you were entertained. You watch funny compilation videos of people failing or, or mm-hmm. successful humans and funny animal tricks and, and kids and things like that. I just didn't think it was a place where serious education can happen to, to make a point on this or to put a point on this. I remember searching for the word branding, the way that you and I understand branding, which is like a person's gut feeling about a product service or organization. But the top 10 search results didn't have anything to do with branding at all. It had things to do with putting a mark on a cow or a tattoo on a person. That's what YouTube knew of branding. So I thought we had our work cut out for us. But that also meant <clears throat> that also meant it was wide open territory that nobody was even looking into making content for branding for creatives and, and clients alike. So we grew the channel and then we started to pivot. And this is the biggest pivot I've made in my life, which was to go from a service design company 
to becoming a content and education channel, aka the future. I really value your response because, Chris, our listening audience, some of the people listening to us are medical device distributors. These are highly technical sales professionals. I mean, they can go into a brain surgery and know which instrument to offer at the right time or a spine surgery. They're highly technical, but they're also gifted sales and marketing professionals. Mm -hmm. And they operate as businesses in a particular state or region. They are at that same intersection that you and I, where perhaps 15 degrees to the left or right of what they thought they would be doing or pre-pandemic, they've got to pivot. And so I thought that that question would help our distributors understand how you as at perhaps it's just my own nomenclature, a a traditional brand agency, people Mm -hmm. pay a fee for a service or a project. Um, Our distributors are in that same mindset. And what they're learning is they thought they were selling a product they now understand that they must pivot and be a problem solver or a mm-hmm. perspective builder. So that was very helpful. Chris, what's something that most people don't know about you? Most people don't know that I'm, I'm not, uh, I was not born in America. Most people don't know that I'm an introvert and extremely shy. Uh, most people don't know that I really struggle to be in front of the camera and on stage, despite how I may appear on camera. And this is an acquired skill. And if anybody is super morbidly curious, all they have to do is go back to 2014 and watch some of the early videos where I hardly said anything on camera at all. And it was only through the insistence and just don't take no for an answer friend, Jose, who said, I don't care. You're going to do this. We're doing this together. And I'll tell you what, I'll do all the talking, he says to me. All you have to do is sit there. And I was thinking, that's what you're going to get from me because I don't want to say anything. And I remember after the first couple of sessions that we did together, the next day, my jaw would be so sore. And I was thinking, I don't think I was grinding my teeth. What is going on? Like, why does this hurt so much? And then I figured it out. My jaws were clenched so tightly during the taping of this that it actually caused some kind of physical stress on my body. And these are things that I deal with all the time. Now, luckily, through exposure, repeatedly putting myself out there, the pain is a little less figuratively and literally. (laughs) I took you up on that challenge. I watched the behind the brand interview Mm -hmm. in which you were featured. Mm -hmm. You had made the comment about um, kind of, Hey, go back to these videos. And I think you were 11 years old. I'm almost positive. You were like an 11 year old in that first couple of interviews. (laughs) You've, you've you've grown, Chris. (laughs) I mean that with, with in every level of respect. So I, I enjoyed it, you know, kind of seeing, uh, this transition that you yourself are making because, you know, you're, you're a confident person who has a distinct point of view. And I was intrigued to go back and look at the different videos and I could see you gaining clarity in your own vision and your own point of view. And so really refreshing to see for those who are listening, you'll, you'll want to do the same thing. It's a sociology experiment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is there a conventional wisdom in your industry that you say, this is just plain wrong? 
are you talking about the motion design industry? Uh, no, pretty much uh, branding and okay. and development of that. So anything that's mm. kind of considered conventional wisdom that you're like, yeah, that's just plain wrong. I, I think so. And and Dr. Clayton Christensen writes about this. The late Dr. Clayton Christensen writes about this in his book, the the Innovator's Dilemma. And he talks about like how systems and the way that we work reward us for doing incremental changes and servicing our best customers. But that's the very thing that will drive us out of business when a, a disruptive force comes in. And and he goes something like this, or it goes something like this, right? Where if you have great customers and, and you service them, they're going to tell you, we want more of this, but just a little bit better. And so this is your highest center for profit. And it seems the easiest, lowest hanging fruit to kind of pursue. And you keep doing this. In the meanwhile, some young upstart, scrappy, innovative kids, I'll just call them kids, will mm-hmm. do something like what you do, but a lot cheaper and something that's not nearly as good. And what happens is they start to create a whole new market for what they do. So your current clients are going to be satisfied with you for a period in time. And then this new market that's kind of tangentially related to what it is that you're doing is all of a sudden going to be good enough. And there's a a Wired Magazine article about this called The Good Enough Revolution, how drones have replaced jets, how little tiny wearable cameras have replaced large bulky cameras. And it turns out we're all okay with this, that this preoccupation with perfection and the highest spec and performance fill in the blank, that you're betting everything, literally, the audience is going to pay a premium for that. And that's just not the case. And he talks about, I think it was uh, Honda motorcycles entering into the US market. And at that point, big, loud, muscular, macho motorcycles like Harley Davidson were dominant. And Honda just couldn't figure out how to sell these things. And they were trying their best, these two salespeople that were just trying to sell motorcycles. And they almost gave up. And to take some of the pressure off themselves, they would go up into the hillsides and the mountains and kind of just dirt bike it and just do different things that you couldn't do on a big, beefy, heavy motorcycle. And then word started to spread. And people were like, this is really cool. Where'd you get these things? And these young enterprising salespeople are like, oh, yeah, these are the different way that we ride. And these were smaller, lighter, massively underpowered, but they were really fun to ride. And then all of a sudden, Honda finds a brand new market and they start growing like crazy. And this is what we're talking about. So a lot of companies and brands just totally get this part wrong, that they think giving more higher quality versions of what they do today is going to be the ticket. And I'm pretty sure everybody that is one of your your clients or a hardcore audience members who is in the medical space has experienced this and seen how new devices and solutions that they didn't think previously were viable start to dominate and erode their entire market. And and Dr. Christensen talks about this in example after example. Even his own thesis at the beginning was incorrect, that if you just do more of what people want, that you're going to succeed. What compelled you to write Pocketful of Dough? Mostly... um, People kept telling me, you should write a book. You should write a book. We love the way you think. And I don't see myself as a writer. That is not my go-to strength or skill. And so the idea of writing a book was super daunting to me. 
But I, I challenged myself and I told the team, look, if we start a Kickstarter project and enough people want this thing and we hit our funding goals, I'll be forced to do it. But, you know, because the Internet can be very fickle. They can tell you, we want this. We'll pay for that. We love you. But when it comes time to pulling out their credit card, there's a big gap there. We know that. We accept that. So I was delighted and shocked and surprised that when people actually started to support the project, our goal was just to raise $25,000. Later on, I found out coincidentally, if you're working with a publisher, uh, the best that you could hope to do is to get the $25,000 advance. And they would consider that very successful. So the numbers just lined up just right. But instead of raising $25,000, we raised over $70,000, almost three times our initial goal. So then the hard work began about like, okay, now they've paid for it. I better write this thing. In the book, you quote, you know my name, not my story. You know my smile, not my pain. You notice my cuts, not my scars. You can read my lips, not my mind. You don't know me at all, Hamanshu Sharma. And it's from your chapter entitled, To Be Interesting, Be Interested. Share how this became an attitude adjustment and even a focus for you on the power of asking better questions. Mm, there's so much in that. I'm so thankful that you're bringing this up. Not, not a lot of people have asked me this. For a long time, I taught storyboarding class at Art Center and at Otis. And so I had to do a lot of research and learning about story. So the short version of it is, uh, until you know my story, you don't know me. And of course, it's self-serving because I'm trying to teach people how to become better storytellers. And it's not until later that I start to realize, oh, idiot, this is not something you tell people. This is something that you live. And I've been very guarded about letting out personal information about myself. And I I know the irony here, right? I'm telling Mm -hmm. young designers how to tell stories, what the secret to storytelling is. And yet I myself have not done that at all. And I wanted to take a hard pause here. Uh, Hopefully it'll make sense in a second. But growing up as a super introverted, shy person, I, I learned the skill of listening because I was afraid to be seen and to be heard. I wasn't comfortable with my language skills. And uh, it's because I, I learned to speak Vietnamese. Uh, that was my first language. And so at home, it, there wasn't a lot of examples of English-speaking people who were constructing complicated sentences. And so I was just very nervous all the way through high school. Um, I, I've shared this story before. My my uh, biology teacher, Mr. De Leon, that name was so hard for me to say because it had so many syllables in it. And eventually I just asked him, can I just call you Mr. D? <laughs> so you can see, like, I, I'm, I'm telling this mm-hmm. to emphasize this point. So what I had always thought was a serious weakness and deficit, which was my inability to articulate what it is I'm thinking and to use the power of my voice, literally, I developed some other skills. I paid attention. I listened intently. And it wasn't until much later in, until I become a professional that I learned, you know what? If you just hold space for other people to tell their story, they look at you differently. I'm in this really big meeting. It was for uh, Deutsche LA. And it was for Mitsubishi Motors when Deutsche had just won the national account. They were doing regional spots, but now they won the national account. And so they invited me to do the, the titles and the motion design for, these, for this big campaign they're rolling out. So I'm in this meeting room. And it's enormous. 
I've never been in such a large conference room before. The table was like a giant U shape. Mm. And there were people from the agency. There were people from the client side. The director and his entourage, everybody came with at least three people. And there's just me because we're still kind of at our infancy as an agency. I didn't have anybody to bring with me. And I sat there as they went through pre-production and talked about all the things they need to get ready. And I'm just sitting there listening, taking notes. And eventually they turned to me, Chris, do you, do you have anything you want to add to this? And I said, yes. And I just said, look, one thing. I said, make sure that the plates that you shoot that are supposed to contain the graphics have enough contrast in the background and that the horizon line is low enough that it could float the type over that. Otherwise, you're going to have a really hard time looking at this and it won't feel like it was designed for it. <laughs> and that's all they said. And then we wrapped up and I was like, whew. And I was sweating bullets thinking the whole time. Oh, I bet. Are they going to call me? Uh, I don't know. Be ready, Chris. Be ready. And then I remember a producer came by and she looked at me and she said, Chris, you're a thinker. And I walked away thinking, you know what? I barely said anything. In in terms of the, the totality of this speaking time, mine was one one hundredth of what was available. And this just is just reinforced by that passage that you read about if you want to be interesting, perceived as being interesting, you just need to be interested in other people. So learn to listen, to talk way less, and people will have a whole different perception about you because you can't learn while your mouth is moving. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. So you had an interview with arguably the godfather of zig and zag of branding, Marty Neumeier, and, mm-hmm. and he wrote one of many books, but uh, the one book, Zag, the number one strategy of high performance brands. How would you respond to the question of how are you zigging or zagging during the pandemic in a way that's made a difference for you? And also in a way that might be helpful for our listening audience who's kind of figuring this out during the pandemic, zigging and zagging. Yeah. I think when when a disruptive force hits you, something that's un- unforeseen, I think the preparation that you've made prior to that moment have a lot to do with your ability to pivot, to zag when everybody's zigging. And the analogy is... If you have your seatbelt on, if your car is equipped with airbags, that's all the stuff that you've done prior to this. Because once you get hit by another car, if you're not wearing a seatbelt, if you don't have proper airbags and they're not operational, you're going to feel the pain. And as I'm reading more and more every single day, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of small businesses and big box retailers that are going totally out of business. And they're not talking about closing temporarily while they adjust. They're talking about closing permanently. And it's devastating to see this. But I also think that the pandemic didn't bring this about. Their inability to figure out what's next brought this about. That the pandemic only accelerated what was happening and not changed it. So for us, when the pandemic hit, we had already thought about what does the future of education looks like. It needs to be more affordable. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be something that you can watch over and over again. It needs to be dynamic and entertaining. So since 2014, we've been building this. We've been building the seatbelt, if you will, because we know it's coming. It's just a question of time. And I would, for anybody that was willing to listen, tell schools and institutions of higher learning, hey, You guys can leverage all these tools and technologies, but why you don't, I do not understand. 
why professors still give the exact same lecture that they gave the first time they gave that lecture. It doesn't make sense. Why we bring a whole bunch of people together just to have this non-interactive way of teaching. And I love what Seth um, Seth Godin had said about this, which is um, lectures should be done at home and homework should be done at school because that's the time that you need help. So that's a complete flip from the way things are done in terms of most conventional schools. And so we've prepared for this moment. And so when the lockdown came in March, I was worried because are people going to be spending money when they don't know where their next paycheck is coming from? So the adjustments that we've had to make even though I believe the adjustment had already been made, which was one, we we put on long-term uh, all our products on sale. Just to say, you know what, we feel the, the crunch with you, so we're going to try to get through this rough patch together. And it's been on sale since March. It's ending soon. The other thing that we had done was we have a 13,000-square-foot building in prime real estate here in Santa Monica that nobody was using at all. So I had to make this decision. At first, I thought it was going to be really difficult, but I told the entire team, we are no longer going to be a business that's brick and mortar. I want everybody to go to the office, grab your stuff, tell me what you need, and then we're all working from home. You can work from wherever you want from here on out forever. So that all of a sudden freed up, like, how can we use the space? Now, the space is divided for humans to be there in in long tables and workspaces and small offices. But now that nobody was there, it was just basically a space, a blank canvas for us to do something else with that. And I remember because I would strategically build sets and, and set up lighting equipment to avoid interaction with people who are walking through the office, right? Because we want a quiet space that we can film and not disturb people. But now it was just basically two of my team, two production people that are at the office. And now we could take over the entire space. So we're still kind of figuring out how best to utilize the space, but I've got some ideas I'm cooking. And yeah, I that's think- so good. I, you know what I think we're going to be doing, which is we're going to build the classroom of the 21st century. I'm putting a ton of money into figuring out if if long uh, long-term, we can't be around people and from teachers to event event organizers and speakers, what are they going to do? Right now, all we're seeing is a bunch of people on Zoom with really bad camera gear, with horrible lighting and microphones in rooms that that have too many hard surfaces. So the sound is terrible. You feel like you're 30 feet away from this person. So if you're a speaker, we hope that when we finish building this thing and then we open it up to a select few individuals, that they'll just drop in totally like quarantine, you know, safe. And we're like very far apart with plastic shields and everything. Come in, film your piece of content, do your live workshop, do it with us. And we want to facilitate that. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Chris, you're probably familiar with Jason Freed of Basecamp. Mm -hmm. When he and his business partner wrote the book, Rework, I had an opportunity to interview them and that was a couple years ago, mm-hmm. obviously pre-pandemic, and it helped me to begin thinking through that as well in in terms of reworking and how we think about that. I've had the opportunity to be educated by the future by taking your courses. I feel like I know you. I feel like I know Matthew. I feel like I know others because you've become teachers 
in a time-shifted and virtual mm-hmm. way to enable me to learn from whenever and wherever I choose to learn. And so I love that. And uh, our agency has done a similar thing. In fact, one of the fastest growing segments of our business are surgeons who initially thought that they wanted us, which we do about 200 a year, videos to help them kind of communicate the technicalities of what they're doing. And we pivoted and said, let's start giving patients a glimpse during the pandemic of your point of view and the problems Mm. that you solve. And initially there was confusion as to they thought that they had to be a certain personality. We demystified and debunked that from them. And what's been so fun, Chris, is we're now getting projects such as can we fly you to San Antonio and can you help me design and build my own studio so that I, Dr. Scratch and Sniff, administrative <laughs> name, can become my own Red Bull Media Lab. And we're like, we will totally do that. Yeah, We're on seat 17 A, B, and C. We're in San Antonio tomorrow. This is going to be fun. So I love the way that you guys are, are thinking through that. That's a huge you, opportunity, by the way. It really it's is. It's huge. It is so because I think, yeah. I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. I was saying, say everybody's listening to this because I've tried to tell my friends who are in the media space and understand how to make really slick images. Your clients, your your friends who are celebrities, uh, people who are teachers and influencers and authors, they need help with this. And if you can figure out how to help them, not only with the technical part, but to be comfortable on camera. So there's coaching services and different ways of, of handling this. Plus, after they record it, they're not going to want to sit there and edit. There's a lot of post-production services that can be used. You just have to think differently. And so I think that's wonderful that you're, you you have very smart clients. Obviously, they're doctors, but that they are brave enough to say, look, I see this and we have to change this. If telemedicine is a thing and it is a thing, why aren't they investing in this? Yeah, it is. And what's been interesting, Chris, is that we've tried to help surgeons think through the dynamics. We have said this to them. Telemedicine is not a strategy. It's just a communication modality. Don't, you know, don't think of it as that. And then we're able to assist them in making it easier or making it more clarifying to communicate. It may just be through what they would call a telemedicine portal, but it is exciting to begin to see smart doctors care about the patient experience and decrease the amount of time that it takes for patients to know, like, and trust them. And so Mm -hmm. that's been fun to be a part of that. So Blair Enns is somebody that you and I have the opportunity to know and interview the win without pitching manifesto. I bet you, you and I have purchased more copies for clients and associates of that book. And he writes, stars do not audition but they must give up our addiction to the presentation and the big reveal. And then in your book, you go on to talk about scaffolding within Mm -hmm. the context of that. Can you explain that to us, please? Okay. So when, when a building's under construction, they put up scaffolding around the outside to kind of be able to work on the exterior. And it makes the daunting task of working on something on the seventh floor a little bit more manageable because there are layers in which you can go up, you can scaffold towards it. In in the academic educational space, I've been working with Dr. Samuel Holtzman, who does faculty development. He's basically teaching the teachers how to teach 
with some different forms of pedagogy. And I've learned a lot from him. And his one of his favorite expressions is, it's we're helping somebody who's new to a field scaffold towards autonomy. So the old traditional way of teaching is to say, um, listen to what I say, do as I do. And oftentimes what happens is if the instructor isn't around, the students are lost. And this is pretty typical, I think. So he taught me, if you look at the problem and you ask yourself, what are the five decisions that you're making, like what you're looking at, and you try to teach them how to look at the work, they can go towards being autonomous so they don't rely on you anymore. Because after all, what it's teaching, it's the transference of knowledge from one person to another or hopefully many people. So what Blair is talking about there is that the stars don't addition and how we can take steps together. So if uh, we, we think about this, a lot of times clients will ask us, hey, what's your idea on this problem I have without investing any money or time, which is throwing out a problem. And I think this is very, very problematic and almost a trap. I don't think it's intentionally set like that, but it becomes a thing where we feel like, oh, we're the expert. We should be just offering up solutions. So we get into pitch mode and we start telling them, oh, you could do this, you could do that. And you might hit one that they connect with, but that's like gambling. That's a, a shotgun scattershot approach to trying to solve a problem. So what we have to do is we have to resist the urge to give answers on the spot. Doctors know this very well because doctors are the people I often refer to as how a professional person should conduct themselves. You're run through a battery of tests. You're asked a whole bunch of diagnostic questions, but they're very calibrated they're not just random questions because in their mind, they suspect it could be one of a few different kinds of issues that you're facing. So by having this extensive training on how to ask questions and diagnosing, they can quickly zero in on what the potential problem is. Now, if it's a serious problem, they're not going to just say, okay, we're going to put you under anesthesia. We're going to operate on you right, right now, unless it's life-threatening. They're going to run more tests to validate whether or not it's true. So what they're doing is they're scaffolding towards a potential uh, diagnosis, right? I mean, uh, a prescription. They're, they're scaffolding towards a prescriptive answer to what the problem is, what the solution is. So we can learn a lot from that. So as creative people, rather than say, here are a bunch of random things that I think will work based on previous experience, we should just stop. We should ask a bunch of questions and try to narrow it down. And in that way, we instill confidence in our client slash customer that we're making the right decision together, not apart. You don't realize it, but you actually helped me to not become an unpaid consultant. Mm. I've been watching your videos for a while and it helped me to, as you mentioned there, to not fall into the trap of, when people need help, give them the answers in the hope that down the road, they'll pay you. I stopped doing that. And it gave me integrity. It allowed me through some self-awareness to be able to meet people right where they are. It was very, very helpful. So I got one last question for you, Chris. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? Yes. What's your favorite paid your dues story? And in a time like this during this pandemic, I love 
paid your dues stories because I think that there will be people listening to this right now. They're either hunkered down in a foxhole and waiting for the storm to pass, or they're running towards the sound of the gunfire. So what's your favorite paid your due story? Mm, okay. I'm, I'm going to give you the answer and then I'm going to make a commentary on the answer too. I, I think for, for many years, as I was um, traditionally trained in graphic design, stepping into the motion design world, which wasn't even a term that was invented until years after I'd started this thing called motion design, I had to pay my dues because I was entering into something that I knew nothing about. And that the the industry itself was just very early. And so there weren't rules and 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 organizations to support what it is that you do. <clears throat> you kind of just had to figure everything out on your own. And I paid in blood, sweat, and tears, sleeping on the floor, tending over the machine as it rendered, hoping that it would not crash because of issues of RAM. So we're talking about very early versions of software and not nearly as powerful as it is today. And they're, they're painful. And it was a lot of work for not a lot of money, no, no reward. Like we always try and tell people, make sure the risk is worth the reward before you do it. This was all risk, very little reward. And quite literally, I did a 30-second commercial for an anti-drug uh, campaign, and we were paid $500. Mm. And I was glad to do it because I wanted opportunity. And and so the whole pay your due thing uh, is really about not expecting someone to pay for your learning. That's a very entitled mindset. And it really did mean investing a lot of money, time, resources, taking classes, making a ton of mistakes on my own time, sometimes on the client's time, but really ultimately we just paid for it. And you got to work through that. And it's embarrassing when you when you know that they know you don't know what you're doing. But I do want to say this thing, that not all success has to go through this gauntlet of paying your dues. I don't mean to say that there are shortcuts available, but if you're a really smart, enterprising person, what you can do is to use your money to learn from somebody else's experience. And you could be a lot smarter about how you go through paying your dues. So maybe one is in blood, sweat, and tears, and the other one is literally just money, where you buy expertise and you get consultants. So five years after we started, we started to hit a nice little rhythm. We were doing about two, $2.2 million in, in revenue during those years. But I felt like, why can't we do more than this? And I hired a consultant, a business coach, and I'd worked with this person for 10 years. But I got to tell you, in the very first year that I worked with this consultant business coach, we were able to double, almost double our revenue. So we went from $2.2 million to $3.9 million in one year. Mm. And I was thrilled. And that's a different way of paying your dues, that you're borrowing somebody's expertise, an objective point of view, an expert, a subject matter expert, to really sit there and say, I see some gaps in your game, that these things exist in your blind spot and you can't see it. But if we make these two or three tweaks, and they were really so minor, but so essential. And that's what people don't understand, is that the value of a consultant or advisor who's coming from a good place, who has a wealth of experience, who can look at things objectively and also tie what you're doing in with all these other things that they know outside of your own industry, that's worth its weight in gold. And that's why I worked with this consultant for over 10 years. In 2008, 
we started our healthcare brand agency feed. And for a time period, Chris, I wore hustle and grovel and gritty and pay my dues like a badge of honor. But you know what? Like a cheap suit, it began to unravel. And I thought it was overrated. And so when I talk to people in 2020 that temporarily fall into this belief that you've got to struggle unnecessarily, I let them know, don't buy into that. Separate the struggle from finding help and and look beyond this as a badge of honor. And there are people who will share generously out there. And I had to go through that in 2008 to learn that lesson Mm -hmm. because as entrepreneurs or small business owners, you can wear that like a badge of honor and it's, it's a cheap, dull badge. Yeah. It's a very popular idea, especially in, in the creative, in creative circles, because people struggled to get where they're at. So they almost feel like if you didn't struggle, you're not worthy of the attention or the reward that you achieve. So they want to see you struggle. And it's a horrible way of working. It's like, it sucked for me. I walked through the snow without shoes. And so therefore you should walk through the snow without shoes. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. So you can see there's some animosity for people or towards people who achieve success in a relatively short period of time. And they're like, no, we're going to discredit them. And this happens all the time. Yeah, I want to thank you for our listening audience. Again, they range from brain surgeons to medical technology salespeople. And I think that they're at an intersection. And that intersection is, is the difference between viewing what they do in a creative way, but yet still making commerce. So while we can educate creative people and say, hey, you can make a living from this, I think there's something to be said, and this is going to help a lot of people, that you can be a brain surgeon and you can take creativity and rethink it or repurpose it. So I thank you so much. I really do believe that um, what you're teaching is part of the future. And in the link section, et cetera, I'll have links where people like my team and I have gone to Chris and his team at the future and educate us on everything. I mean, the proposal class, Chris, I feel like I should be paying you much more money than the ridiculously cheap amount of money that I spent on the proposal course. Mm-hmm. We've we've made so much money off of just that class that was taught on, you know, winning proposal ideas, mm-hmm. et cetera. It's such common sense. Uh, it's not, hey, you've got to be a creative designer have a man bun. You you don't have to. (laughs) Hopefully not because I don't have any hair. (laughs) I love it. Chris, thank you for being so generous 